you. I think it's that kind of old clothes and porridge feeling, isn't it? It's back to normal, back to school, back into our normal routine. But it's good to be together to worship God. And it's lovely that it's a nice, bright, sunny day. It's kind of inevitable, isn't it? You go back to school and the sun comes out. Our opening words of scripture this morning, our call to worship, come from Ephesians chapter 4. The writer says, I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Our opening hymn of worship this morning is number 108 in the Common Ground book. It also appears on the screen. And so I invite you to stand if you're able as we together sing of the Lord's goodness. And now, having sung, let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Holy God, we have sung of your goodness, enjoying a lively melody. We have praised your name and celebrated the wonder of who you are. Now we approach you in prayer, expressing in words and in silence our thoughts and feelings hopes and fears. We thank you for each person who is here today and also for those who are unable to join us due to age, infirmity or other commitments. We thank you for the familiar rhythm of routine 
after a summer of experiment. And for the new things that she will show us in the days and weeks ahead. We thank you for our church community. We are sorry that some of our friends are facing challenging times. For those who are sad or frightened, unwell or uncertain. We are sorry that some people feel unloved or unlovely. And we're also sorry for the things we've said or done that now make us feel sad or ashamed. We know that you see all of this. Comfort those who are sad and forgive those who feel they are bad. We ask you to guide our thoughts as we listen for your voice. We ask you to soften our hearts as we respond to your spirit. We ask you to give us the peace that Jesus promised his followers. And we gather our prayers together in the words Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting how sometimes things just seem to come together. Um, I kind of had a vague idea of where we were going at the beginning of the week with the service, and a few things have kind of slotted into place. 
This has been a week when the adults, I'm sure, are aware of things that have been in the news about the DWP passing off as truth, things that are clearly not true. And that's kind of interesting because part of the way I wanted to go at the start of our service is looking at things that are fiction but which carry truth. So there's a a bit of an opposite going on there. I wonder if any of the um, younger people or the older people are familiar with any of the the books I've brought along this morning and one I haven't brought because I don't have a copy of it but it kind of fits the same kind of stories. Who has ever read this one? Or any of the series that this is from? This is Prince Caspian. Anybody read Prince Caspian or heard Prince Caspian read to them? I can actually remember when I was very little, um, my parents read to us The Magician's Nephew, which was the beginning. If you read them in the sort of chronology of Narnia, that's the beginning. So what kind of characters do we get in the Narnia stories? Can anybody tell me? Who are the goodies and who are the baddies? Anybody remember? That's hard, isn't it? I seem to remember there's a very bad white witch... Aslan, the lion, who is a really good character, isn't he? And there are the children. Mr. Tumnus, Mr. Tumnus the fawn. Yes, he's like half human and half deer. Is that right? Yep, so all sorts of interesting characters. They have all sorts of adventures. And I think this is Prince Caspian. If you see him on the screen or in, on this copy of the book, he's actually got a sword as he goes riding off on his black charger. Um, a charger was a name for a horse. Uh, not the thing you plug into power your phone. <laughs> Words change their meanings over time, don't they? Okay, who's next? Okay, who's read these ones? Yep, Harry Potter. And can you, anybody tell me who some of the characters are in Harry Potter and what happens? Fire. Harry. Harry, yeah, well done. I think I can manage that one. Um, who else is there? Can you remember? Dumbledore. Dumbledore's the headmaster, isn't he? And he's a, he's a wizard, is that right? He's a wizard, yeah. Uh, Hagrid. Hagrid, who's a, like the big... Is that Brian Blessed in the films? That's Hag- Hagrid, I can't remember. <laughs> well, because, see, I'm rubbish. I, don't, I haven't seen the films. I think I always think it should be Brian Blessed. He'd make a good Hagrid. So, yeah, wizards and witches and children learning how to do defence against dark arts, sort of trying to do the right thing. Uh, what's next? Okay, that's a different edition from the one that I've got. Um, anybody come across the Chronicles of Prodine? Hurrah! It must be Katrina's that read the Chronicles <laughs> of Prodine, mustn't it? Uh, this is Welsh, so I had to check with Jeff the, the pronunciation of Prodine. Prodine is the Welsh world for Britain. Katrina, can you remember any of the characters? Elon with the princess, that's correct. Yeah. The horned king who is the baddie. And Taran who is the, the bit that... Oh, sorry, Beth, you're familiar with Prodine, Prodine as well. So, yep, so there's Taran, who is the pig keeper, who wants adventures. There is Ilonwi, who is the princess. And I have to confess, it took me decades to find these books. So there used to be a song on one of my Christian tapes about Taran and Ilonwi uh, and about the truth that this story carries for us. Lots of adventures. I think there's a few battles along the way, if I remember rightly. A few swords and shields get involved. Okay, oh, that's the next one. Anybody read The Land of Far Beyond? This is one of Enid Blyton's books, which I don't have a copy of, but I do remember reading um, when I was in my teens. It's actually a version of Pilgrim's Progress, rewritten for children in the inimitable style of Enid Blyton, so we'll not spend too long on that one. But again, there it's lots of metaphors in there um, about different things. Metaphors are, are just a name we use for words that sort of represent something else. And this one, anybody got this book? This is the um, Illustrated Treasury of Scottish Folk and Fairy Tales. I thought I, I needed this one for my education. It's slightly worrying that no Scott has a copy of the illustrated <laughs> book of Scott. You, you, you come across it, Becca, but not that one. Okay, anybody got books of Scottish fairy tales or folk tales? Anybody got books of Welsh folk tales or fairy tales? Anybody got books of European folk tales or fairy tales? I think I've probably got some English ones somewhere. I can't remember. But all these, ex- you know, these books that we love and we enjoy, and a lot of them have 
knights in armour, they have dragons, all sorts of strange creatures that have adventures and battles. And yet these stories seem to have a truth for us. And I've invited my fellow Prudine reader, Katrina. Um, I should have got Beth in on this one as well, had I known. But Katrina actually does some very interesting hobbies that she's just going to tell us a weeny bit about. Um, and she's got a lovely quote to share with us. So this one is actually more of a hobby that my boyfriend does that he's tried to rope me into. Um, it's called live-action role-playing, shortened down to LARPing, which just sounds funny. You make up a character, which can be based on yourself. It can be based on a character in a book. Um, and you pretend to be that character for the weekend. So you go and you dress up, normally in a field, in the rain, in the mud... <laughs> and run around hitting each other with foam swords. Um, it's a bit of an odd hobby, but it's also a form of escapism. Like My boyfriend really enjoys it because he doesn't have to be himself for a weekend. He can go and be... Uh, I can't remember what all the stuff he is. He's got too many of them. Um, he pretends to be a werewolf sometimes. He is a vampire in another one. He is a... Basically, Doctor Who. In one of them, he has sonic screwdrivers and to represent things. Um, but all of them have, do... Um, the, there is something there that links to himself as a person. So, for example, Ben is a very loyal person. Most of his characters are very loyal and very dedicated. Um... Yeah, I think I've run out of stuff. Okay. I'm going to give him a quote, though. Do your little quote. He actually, when I said to him that I was doing something like this this morning, he sent me a quote that he found which works, which fitted quite well. Um, Strive to be a warrior and a scholar. Be forged in fire and tempered by knowledge. If not, you will lack the courage to fight for your ideals or lack ideals worth fighting for. Thank you, Katrina. So I guess if there's a message in what we're saying this morning, which you might be thinking, where on earth is any of this going? These stories that we love are a really important treasury that we have. The stories that have, have sustained our cultures, our nations over many years. The stories written in more recent times that pick up on those same ideas, that talk about the, the tension that exists between right and wrong, between good and evil, between hope and fear, and explores those through stories that are accessible to people of all ages. And if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, I think they're good messages worth reading. I know a few Christians get a bit iffy about Harry Potter, but we all read Narnia, and there's witches and wizards in that, so perhaps we just need to get over ourselves a little bit. The song we're going to sing is one that I learned at primary school, and I know that Nancy knows it because she was one of the people that knew it when we sang it at the big sing at the University Chapel. Um, it is English, so this is my contribution, sort of contribution of English folklore to the, uh, the, the table today. Um, the tune is familiar to you, and some of you may have sung it at school. When a knight won his spurs in the stories of old. Thanks, Paul.
Our first reading this morning is from Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Wisdom's Feast. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her animals. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servant girls. She calls from the highest places in the town. You that are simple, turn in here. To those without sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. Our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. The whole armour of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, which with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. It seems from the hands that went up earlier that most of us grew up reading or hearing these traditional folk tales and legends. And in these, the characters move seamlessly between one realm or universe and another. The 20th century fantasy stories from C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales through to J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter stories involve tales of daring do and battles between good and evil. Children dress up as knights or soldiers or as wizards. They carry weapons, swords or magic wands and they use those to dispatch their enemies. Both the Chronicles of Narnia and the Chronicles of Prudine act as a form of Christian allegory. And each of those stories to some degree involves violence and magic or other supernatural forces. On the whole, with the exception of a few very conservative folk, Christians are happy for their children to enjoy these stories, 
recognising the power of myth and legend, that fantasy and story can indeed carry important truths. On the whole, we don't make a connection between the battles described in Narnia or the sometimes incredibly dark scenes in Harry Potter with events in the real world. We recognise that these are literary devices, metaphors employed to express ideas to which, on the whole, we probably do give our assent. Good overcomes evil. Justice is restored. Love triumphs. So maybe there is a place for this kind of imagery, albeit in an exaggerated and perhaps somewhat comedic form. And yet. And yet, like a lot of people, I'm not really comfortable with battle language and the glib use of military metaphors. And that, for me, is something that was heightened during my own experience of being diagnosed and treated for a life-threatening condition. I'm sure we've all heard the words, we've maybe even found ourselves saying them. Well, so-and-so is a real fighter as they battle disease and fight their way back to health. I really struggle with that kind of metaphor. I really dislike the term survivor for those to describe those for whom cancer treatment has been successful in halting or curing their condition. Because what does it make those for whom treatment is less successful? Are they losers? Did they not fight hard enough? Did they not engage with the battle? It's awful, awful, because somehow it assigns blame to those whose treatment wasn't successful, suggesting if they'd tried harder, prayed more, eaten better, or whatever it is, the outcome might have been different. But actually, it might not. So do we then need to find other imagery, other metaphors, other ways of describing these experiences? Certainly, overall, I tend to use the language of journey to describe my own experience, or sometimes I even just say, this was my experience. I'm not going to explore that further today, but it's something you can think about at your own leisure. What metaphors do we use to describe our own tough situations? And do they help or hinder us and others? And then on top of all that, what are we to do in a world where violence, whether large-scale war or the verbal, sexual and physical abuse of family members is rife? What are we supposed to do when, as Christians, we make claims about a kingdom of peace? And when phrases like non-violence trip so easily from our tongues? And then, we come up against a passage like the one we've just heard from Ephesians 6, with the language of offensive and defensive armour, helmets, belts, breastplates, boots, swords, shields. What do we do with that? Indeed, is there something we can do with that? There are some people for whom the literary device of a metaphor is self-evident and the image is easily relegated to a secondary consideration. Roman soldiers in full battle dress would have been a familiar sight at the time this was written and so therefore perhaps it's an entirely time-bound culturally relevant metaphor. But there are others for whom this in the inherent military reference is anathema. And they, for those people, it can be difficult, if not impossible, to move beyond that to see what the writer could be attempting. For some people reading this passage, the implied supernatural element is central and the battle between good and evil played out in a spiritual realm beyond and impacting on the lives of mortals is really significant. And for others, this is problematic, seeking to demythologize the powers into attitudes and actions which can and should be opposed by those who follow Christ. If anybody wants to go and do some reading about that, then I suggest you look at the work 
of Walter Wink, who's written extensively on that subject. So then, when the lectionary throws up this passage, as it does this week, or when we encounter this or something similar in the course of private reflection, what do we do? Do we just ignore it? Because that's kind of easy. Or do we accept the challenge of trying to engage with it, seeking to discover truths contained within it, however tricky it might be to find them? Well, I'm pretty sure you can guess which of those options I've chosen this morning. Because if I was going to ignore it, I'd shut up now, and I'm not about to. The location of this passage towards the end of the letter to the Ephesians is decidedly odd. We've just had some detailed expositions about relationships within individual households. The way that marriage partners should relate to each other. The way that parents and children should relate. The way that slaves and owners should relate. And now suddenly, we get this on a whole different level. And this passage, this armour passage, is almost entirely written in the second person plural which is something we lose in English translation. It's not addressed to individuals, it's addressed to a whole community. It is as community that temptation, sin, evil or oppression is encountered and in community that they are to be resisted. Being equipped to face the challenges isn't something you do on your own in isolation. However, uncomfortable we find military imagery maybe the idea of a call or a body of people who are able to watch over each other to look out for each other to watch each other's backs is actually an important one because this isn't the story of a a knight in shining armor going out alone to slay a dragon or to liberate a castle or rescue a princess rather This assumes that the defeat of evil needs the consolidated efforts of the whole body of believers. And then, because it's so often the case that when we read scripture in church, we only hear a relatively small bit, that we lose the context and the nuance of what was being said. The call in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armour of God, actually echoes some words earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, where the believers are similarly told to clothe themselves in the new self, to be created, which is to be created in God's likeness. The commentators suggest that there's no accident about this similarity, that it's different aspects of some concept that are being explored. If you can remember back to the start of the service, I read some verses from Ephesians 4. And these verses called the believers, plural, in community, to do this. To lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These characteristics, elsewhere identified as the fruit or the evidence of God's spirits being at work within individuals, seem to me about as far away as possible from this image of armour. So how do we begin to reconcile them? Well, perhaps one possible starting point to approach the armour image is to recognise some of the characteristics of a soldier or at least the storybook version of a soldier that we admire secretly, if not openly. Courage, determination, obedience, perseverance. Of course, these aren't exclusively the characteristics of soldiers, but they are among those easily recognised. But it's what happens next that is the scandal and the genius of this metaphor. The armour that's described 
the attributes equated with the different elements of the soldier's equipment are at least superficially ridiculous, utterly bonkers. It's often quoted that the first casualty of war is truth. So how ironic is it then that the first item with which the community is to equip itself is the belt of truth? Now, there have been in the past, and I'm sure there will be, lots and lots of sermons to go into detailed um, analysis of each of these items of clothing and equipment. I'm not going to do that here. But perhaps the thing we need to recognize is that first thing that we need to face the powers, however we understand them, is truth. Before anything else, in order to engage with overcoming evil, We need to aspire to the characteristic of truthfulness, honesty, integrity. And we know that that's not so easy in practice. But that's the starting point. And next up is the breastplate of righteousness. It's one of those nice churchy words, isn't it? Righteousness. A word that, if we're not carefully, can slide into priggishness or a kind of supercilious, holier-than-thou attitude. But actually, what this is about is really down-to-earth practical stuff. Again, the quality of integrity, justice, recognizing our own place within the structures that has the the potential to liberate or oppress to create or destroy. It's not easy to cultivate that attitude of righteousness or to perpetuate it. But ultimately, this is what helps to protect us from the things that would destroy our humanity. If we lose our concern for justice, if we lose our integrity, if we fail to understand who we are, then we run the risk of becoming less fully human to tarnish the image of God within us. The third item in the list probably carries a hint at the messenger referred to in Isaiah, the one who announces the good news of God's salvation, the restoration of those who feel utterly abandoned and hopeless. And it's this strange instruction to be shod with the readiness to announce the gospel of priests. Surely, if anything, this is a very mischievous subversion of the military metaphor, emphasizing peace, God's shalom. This isn't the tough leather boot of a foot soldier. Rather, it is the sandal of a swift-footed messenger. This is about the willingness to witness, to stand up for what we believe. This is non-violence, the irenic equipping that has the potential to carry transformation wherever it goes. Not to stamp on others, but to walk among them. And then the shield of faith. How often do we remind ourselves that faith isn't the same thing as certainty, but rather faith is that which enables us to go on believing in the very reality of doubt and questioning, fear and anxiety. That faith is a trust of, sorry, faith is an exercise of trust, even in the midst of adversity. It's tenacious. It can cling on by its fingertips. It's a refusal to succumb to despair. Faith is what equips us to enter literal or metaphorical dark places and treacherous situations, both individually and together, trusting that all will be well. Then comes salvation as a helmet. Um, We actually haven't got time to discuss the the topic of soteriology today, for which I'm sure we're all very grateful. But surely the centre of our faith is in what God has done and continues to do for all of us. 
and for all creation in and through Christ in defeating sin, evil and death. Salvation is a slippery word. It's quite a difficult one to define. But it relates to that hope that we have. To the horizon of God's recreation of all things at the end of time. We see then that salvation isn't just something we aspire to achieve for ourselves or something that we claim for ourselves or for others. But it's ultimately rooted in the hope that inspires every moment of our lives as we work together with God for the salvation of all. And then last, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Frankly, I reckon that expression is about as clear as mud. There are countless preachers who have equated this to the scriptures, brandishing proof texts to cut down the arguments of those who oppose them. But I'm not convinced that it's the written word that is meant here. In the Hebrew scriptures, as we heard and as Katrina read for us, God's spirit wisdom is personified as Sophia, a woman who offers an alternative to folly. We're called to equip ourselves with wisdom, with careful, prayerful reflection, with open-minded engagement with challenging ideas, and not to fall prey to proof texting or Bible bashing. And the Spirit of God leads us to none other than the Word of God. Not books and not scrolls, but rather to Jesus, the Word made flesh, who incarnated for us all that God teaches. Beyond attitudes and actions, what equips the community of faith to be and to do that which it is called to be and to do, is none other than Christ. I looked at a number of commentaries this week, and one of them just seemed to sum it up perfectly in one sentence. And you'll probably wish I'd just read you the sentence rather than waffling for 20 minutes. This is what he wrote. The whole armour of God, who won his specific victory over the powers through the cross, is nothing less than the naked, defenceless, crucified Christ. The whole armour of God who won his specific victory over the powers through the cross is nothing less than the naked defencelessness of the crucified Christ. In the ultimate subversion of the military image of a soldier clad in full armour, The Christian community wears the vulnerable, broken nakedness of Christ in defiance of all that would seek to kill or destroy. The writer says, put on God's armour so that when the evil day comes you will be able to resist and having resisted to the end, to stand. Dress yourself in the naked blood-smeared, nail-scarred vulnerability of Christ who has already overcome evil and death. That's an incredible challenge. And it's an amazing subversion of a military metaphor. And above all, it is an opportunity for us together in community to attempt to model a different way of being. It is a difficult concept to get your head around and to work with. But I can't help feeling maybe the Irish saint St. Patrick captures something of this mystery when he, in one of his hymns, refers to Christ as his whole armour. So let's continue to reflect as we sing hymn number 521. Be thou my vision. O Lord of my heart.
And now let's come to God with our prayers for others and within them, our prayers for each other and for ourselves. God, who meets us in the vulnerable, rejected, executed Christ, we bring our prayers for a world in need of healing and hope. As we recall the stories that delighted us as children and the dreams they inspired, we thank you for those whose work is to create words. For storytellers, poets and playwrights. For scholars, history writers and journalists. Each seeking to share truth as they perceive it and each shaped by and shaping the societies of which they are part. Grant them wisdom, compassion, gentleness and integrity to rightly name as evil that which is evil and to inspire others for good. As we face the uncomfortable reality of a world in which violence and corruption leads to situations that prompt powerful nations to military action, we pray for those caught up in the reality of war. For uniformed young men and women, sent to places they don't know, to fight for causes they may never understand. and for civilians trapped between opposing forces, fearing for their lives and unsure what each day will bring. Into these seemingly impossible situations, please bring your incomprehensible peace, transforming hatred with love and fear with hope. As we call to mind those known to us who face huge, even seemingly insurmountable challenges, we pray for those who are ill, those whose personal circumstances seem hopeless, those whose every moment is characterized by anxiety or regret, guilt or bewilderment. We pray also for those whose lives are given in alleviation of suffering, treating the sick, comforting those at the end of life, advising and guiding those who feel lost, and encouraging those who doubt their own worth. In each situation, we trust you are present. And into each situation, we pray your healing, transforming grace. As we become aware of our own needs, our own imperfections, our own aspirations, our own hopes and fears, so we pray for ourselves. We remember the call to clothe ourselves in your armour, which to our shock is to take on the defencelessness of the crucified Christ. Soften us where we have become hard. 
still us where we are agitated. Calm us where we are troubled. Love us when we are unlovely. Equip us with truth, integrity, hope and love so that we might be as Christ to others and to each other. For we pray in his name. Amen. Generous God, we do indeed thank you for the many blessings we enjoy each day. And so gladly we return these gifts of money that they be employed to share the good news of Jesus in this community and throughout the world that all may come to know his love and mercy and to be felt themselves part of your kingdom of peace. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 572. God of grace and God of glory, on your people pour your power. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour.
eternal God, in whom we put our trust, send us from here, renewed in courage, hope and love, to face the challenges of the week ahead. And may we know your peace in our hearts, now and always. Mm